The book of Ecclesiastes. So it's part of what we call in the Bible the wisdom literature. The wisdom literature of the Bible, as, as we think of our Bible, makes, is made up of five books, the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. Uh, previously, when I preached a series on the book of Proverbs uh, a number of years ago, um, I gave it a good Ulster title. I called it Wise Up. Um, wisdom from the book of Proverbs, because that's, that's really the invitation of Proverbs. It's to become wise. And that, that idea that in the Bible there are books that invite us to wisdom, that, that stands for, for each of these five books, and, and Ecclesiastes certainly sits under that umbrella. God has given us in His Word books that are there to help us to wise up and to learn to live well in the world that he has made. I'm going to say I'm not sure that our tradition values the wisdom literature of the Bible quite the way it should. I think if we did, we might have a wiser bodies of God's people. So let's bend our ear this evening um, I'm going to try and introduce this book of Ecclesiastes, give you an appetite to, to maybe go home and read it this month. Ecclesiastes, you, you, please have chapter one open in front of you. We'll start there. We'll not really teach the chapter particularly, but we'll, we'll start there and orient ourselves in the book. It opens with this line, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. So that English word teacher here translates the Hebrew word koheleth, and, and that simply means somebody who gathers people together. In some traditions, we would have called him the preacher, historically, so it's the preacher or the teacher, somebody who's gathering people to teach to them, and that's why the NIV translates it the way it does. By the way, we call the book Ecclesiastes for a very simple reason. It's a, a Greek translation of that same word, koheleth. So whether we call it uh, the teacher, whether we call it Ecclesiastes, whether we use the Hebrew Koheleth, it's always the same thing. It's the teacher. This book is the book of the teacher. If you keep your eye on verse 1, we're told that the teacher is the son of David, and there are different views about what that means. Is it David's actual son, King Solomon, who ruled who ruled Israel with wisdom and power? It could be. Is it some other descendant of David, some other son of David? Again, that's possible. Is it some other Israelite teacher who's using a, a Solomon-like persona uh, to, to bring this teaching uh, dimension to life for us? That's very possible too. The truth is we don't know for sure who Ecclesiastes, who the teacher is. A, a key thing to notice as we start out in Ecclesiastes is to see that the teacher is a character in this book, and he's a distinct person from the author of the book. Let me show you this very quickly. We do hear the teacher's voice for almost the entirety of the book. So from chapter 1, verse 2, 
through to chapter 12, verse 8. That's the teacher speaking. But there's a different voice in chapter 1, verse 1, and at the end of the book, the author of the book who introduces us to the teacher's teaching and who then evaluates it. The best way to see this is actually at the end of the book. If you flick with me for a second to chapter 12, If you look there at verse 9, everything right through the book has been the teaching of the teacher. And now the book ends with the author evaluating the teacher's teaching. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. So what we have here is an author presenting us the teacher's teaching. And now at the end of the book, he commends it to us. He wants us to hear all that the teacher has to say. He wants us to receive it as God-given wisdom for our lives. So what about this teacher? What is his message? What's this book all about? I'd like to suggest this evening that the teacher's message has a negative, first a negative and then a positive aspect. And, and if you read the book maybe through just once, the, the negative seems overwhelming. It, it seems by far the most prominent. It seems like quite a cynical book, actually. Quite unusual among the, the books of the Bible. And, and as I say, the result is that Ecclesiastes can have a reputation for being quite a cynical look at life. I'd like to suggest this evening that Almost the entire opposite is true. But we have to wait till the end of our time together to see that. The, the, this book has a beautiful invitation in it to enjoy your life. When I did a preaching series in Ecclesiastes one time, I called the series Enjoy Your Life. Because I think that's what God's inviting us to do in this book. Let's get stuck into the text then and engage with the teacher's message. Look at his first words there in verse 2 of chapter 1. If you've been around Ecclesiastes at all, you'll know this stuff. This is, this is classic Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That is not a cheery note to, to start his teaching. Well, we might say that that's all pretty clear. The teacher's outlook in life isn't positive. He's a, he's a glass half empty or totally empty kind of a guy. That's what he's saying at the start of this book, at the beginning of his recorded teaching. Well, well, if you know anything about how people teach and maybe how they teach over a period of time or a lifetime, if you've ever studied a scholar, sometimes you might say to a person, you know, a young Martin Luther preached like this and towards the end of his life he preached like this or John Calvin's ideas started here and they developed to here. What about this teacher? Are his ideas changing as we move through the book? Chapter 12, verse 8, quick look. These are, remember, the last words of his that are recorded before the, the author of the book comes in to evaluate. What does he say? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. Uh, 
Folks, that's where he starts, that's where he finishes, and he says it a lot of times along the way. No great turnaround. This seems to be the settled view of the teacher. His first word and his last word, most of his words in between, pretty consistent. He wants the assembly who are before him to know that everything's meaningless. Okay, we need to pause there for a second and talk about this word that's translated in our NIV as meaningless. The reason we need to talk about it is it's not a great translation. In fact, it's not an easy word to translate, so I'm not, I'm not being critical particularly of the translation. I'm just saying it, it doesn't translate easily. This word, hevel, in the, the Hebrew, is used 38 times in the book. It's kind of the, the rhythmic heartbeat of the book. Whenever the NIV has the teacher saying that everything is meaningless, um, I, I think it says something about this on the, the poster. They have a wee, yeah, right up at the top. They have a wee diagram um, where, where they encourage us to, it, it'd be much better translated that everything's like a breath. It's like a puff of smoke. And actually, I think there's a significant difference there. What he wants us to know is that like a breath of wind or a a wisp of smoke, life is short. It's elusive. It's not, I don't think it's quite true to say that it's meaningless. But what is true to say is that we can't grab hold of it. We can't hold on to it. We can't control it. And I think that's a slightly different thing to be saying than to say that life is meaningless. That's what he wants to impress on us. We can't grab hold of it. We can't keep hold of it. And we cannot control life for our own ends. That's what the teacher wants to impress on us. Remember, now, this is wisdom literature. So the implication is, if if that's the message of the teacher, the implication for me is that I'm not going to live life well until I grasp his message. If I'm still running around thinking that I can grab a hold of life and keep a hold of it and control it for my own ends, then I'm living a foolish life. Okay? That's what we're talking about here this evening. Waking up to this reality that we can't Hold it. If you look at your Ecclesiastes poster, you'll see there in the top right-hand corner a wee section that they, they talk about the author's basic goal. The author's basic goal is to let the teacher deconstruct all the ways in which we find meaning and purpose apart from God. And and we're told there in the wee diagram that the teacher tackles issues such as wealth, career, status, and pleasure. I thought what we'd do is we'd look at one of these. Uh, What what you're being offered there is a structure, a summary of almost the whole book. But I thought we'd trace one of them. So turn with me to chapter 5, where the teacher turns his attention to wealth. If you're using an NIV you'll see the the heading there at verse 8, a section beginning with the title, Riches Are Meaningless. 
So the teacher begins with a pretty honest look at how wealth actually functions in his society. He says, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the fields. Sounds entirely contemporary to me. He's making the point that the rich and the powerful have a way of ensuring that wealth continually rises from the grassroots up to the top where they get to cream it off. As I say, not much has changed in the three or 4,000 years since the teacher was in his classroom. But look at what he says next. Talks about how wealth never satisfies. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. So there it is, that, that word meaningless, the Hebrew word hevel. Wealth, but maybe particularly the sense that it would bring us joy. That's elusive. We can't grab hold of it. We can't hold on to it. We can't always control resources for our own ends. We certainly can't rely on them to bring us joy. The teacher accepts here that some people do end up with a disproportionate amount of wealth and goods, but he wonders to what end. Look at verse 11. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Wow. We're being sold a pup. We're being told that wealth makes you happy. And the teachers reminded us that it's actually not true. Wealthy people aren't generally happier. Experience tells us. Sometimes they just have more stresses, more property to insure, more things to worry about. Look at that laborer. Does an honest day's work and sleeps like a log. Beautiful. Verse 13, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. The wealth that we have can harm us. I hope it hasn't been your experience, but if anybody's ever had a massive reversal of fortune, it's a devastating thing to have wealth and to lose it. The teacher reminds us, verse 15, that we can't take it with us. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. So there it is. In one passage, we've seen the teacher deconstruct one of the ways in which we try to find meaning and purpose in our lives apart from God, and that is wealth in this case. 
As the poster tells us, if you read the whole book, you'll find the teacher similarly deconstructing other ways in which we create meaning and purpose in our lives apart from God, be it pleasure, status, career, even wisdom itself, which is very interesting. He's a wisdom teacher, but he, he says, hmm, wisdom's not all it's cracked up to be either. Straight A's and a PhD might not be the, what life's all about. So are you beginning to see how the, the teacher works here and how his message might be relevant to us in Bangor in 2022? His basic idea is that life is elusive. It challenges our endless pursuit of, of wealth and promotion and admiration and influence. The teacher says we can't, we can't in the end grab hold of or keep hold of or control life for our own ends. I'm sort of thinking, well, if we took his message to heart, what would we do with ourselves? He's taken away everything that we actually spend our lives doing. Building a life for ourselves. What would we do if we took this message to heart and stopped trying? My Old Testament professor at Regent College in Proven has this to say about the contemporary relevance of the teacher's message. Joy and fulfillment do not automatically flow from the pursuit of gain and advancement. Indeed, in extensive parts of the Western world, the ever more frantic pursuit of such things is evidently accompanied by spiritual emptiness and world weariness, as people strive to achieve what they can never possess by the means that they have chosen for their attempt. I don't know if this was deliberate on Ian's part, but the wording here reminds me uh, a little bit of William Thackeray in Vanity Fair. Uh, I haven't read the novel. I think it's one of those big, thick ones. So I, I had to settle for the TV series a few years ago. Thackeray talks about a world where everyone is chasing what is not worth having. Everyone chasing what's not worth having. So what might we learn from reading Ecclesiastes this September? We might learn a couple of things at least. First, we might learn to escape from these uh, illusions which are presented to us as reality in our various persuasive and powerful media. Despite what we're being told, I can't make sense of life in this world and I can't make a lasting mark on the world. All my efforts to raise myself above my human station will fail, and they'll be mocked finally by death when it comes for me. The teacher is going to shatter those illusions for us. The second thing we can learn, and this brings me to the positive message of the book of Ecclesiastes. If only I'll listen I'm going to find here the meaning of life on this earth. How to enjoy life. It's a recurring theme. Maybe you've lived with Deuteronomy for years and you've maybe never noticed this. The teacher spends most of his words, most of his verses, if you like, across this book, 
doing the deconstructing work. But there's a recurring melody line. He may be deconstructing many of our efforts to find meaning independent of God, but everything is not meaningless for this teacher. He invites us to find meaning by doing by doing this, accepting that our lives are short, accepting that life's a gift from God, and then embracing life and enjoying it as God's given it to us. Let me show you. We're going to flick through the book very, very quickly, and we're nearly finished. Chapter 2, let's start in chapter 2. This recurring melody line, as I've called it, or or maybe a chorus that repeats. Quite often what happens is he deconstructs something, but then he comes back with this simple kind of refrain. Chapter 2, verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him who can eat or find enjoyment. So there it is. Have you ever noticed how it's the very simplest things in life that are in the end the best? A meal when you're hungry, a glass of water when you're thirsty, rest at the end of a day's work. It's all a gift. Chapter 3, verse 10. I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. God has given us beauty. He's put eternity, that longing for for things beyond the immediate, he's put that in our hearts. He's given us doing good, finding happiness, eating and drinking after a day's work. They're all the gift of God, as is the ability to enjoy them. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. So I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Don't worry about trying to control or understand the future. Enjoy tomorrow. Enjoy Monday, the 5th of September, 2022. If not, it's gone and you've missed it. Chapter 5, verse 18. This is what I've observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. 
Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God doesn't grant them the ability to enjoy them and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. Isn't there something very interesting there? God gives some people wealth and possessions and even honor, but they don't have the ability to enjoy them. It's so true, isn't it? Some of the people who have the most find least contentment. Folks, if if you have a God-given contentment, you have it. You have it. 8, chapter 8, verse 15. We're tracing here this, this positive invitation that the teacher is giving. 8.15. So I command the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and to drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of their life that God has given them under the sun. I could read another couple of passages. If you want a note of them, I, I would point you to 9, chapter 9, verses 7 to 10, chapter 11, verses 7 to 10. So there we have it, the teacher's positive message. Live before God. Live in wonder and obedience and receive it from Him. Yes, there'll be confusion. Yes, there'll be pain. There are no guarantees. But receive it. This is how to enjoy your life. We're pretty much finished with this overview, but... Before I finish, let me answer the question. I'm going to guess maybe half of you are asking this question because it's a question that's often asked in relation to the teacher's message in Ecclesiastes. We say to ourselves, is he, Christoph, is he not an Old Testament kind of guy? He talks, after all, about life under the sun, chapter 1, verse 3, verse 10. Isn't he simply trying to show us what life under the sun is? is like, isn't he simply trying to show his audience how hopeless life is for those who live without God? To which we say, no, of course we know that life is hopeless without God. We're followers of Jesus Christ. We would never choose to live without him who is the way, the truth, and the life. So how can this message of life under the sun still be relevant to us? Let's think about this for the last couple of moments in closing. I want to suggest the teacher here is not talking about what life is like without Jesus. That thread I've just shown you of verse after verse after verse where he's encouraging us to learn to enjoy the life that God has given, that's not... That's that's not an undiscipled life he's describing. That's too simple an answer, folks. He's not saying that this repetitive roundabout 
where it's hard to control life, where it's hard to grasp it, is only the experience of secular people. He's not saying that. This isn't just how the world feels to some existential nihilist or some postmodern navel-gazer. It's what the world feels like to me. And maybe to you too, if you're honest. This is reality. It's the same for everyone, Christian or non-Christian. We all live these days under the sun. Being a Christian doesn't stop this stark message of Ecclesiastes being true. In fact, because we're Christians, we should accept, we should be first to accept the truth that the teacher is teaching. He wants to shatter all our illusions about the lives that we're building for ourselves without reference to God. Eugene Peterson talks about the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, it's not a meal. It doesn't feed you. It's a bath. It washes you. It cleanses our imaginations. And, and I think he's probably right about that. This teacher wants to, to shatter our illusions about life the kind of life that we are creating for ourselves so that he can invite us into to real and full life on God's terms. Ecclesiastes reminds me in this regard of another wisdom teacher, the wisest teacher who ever lived, the greatest teacher the world has ever seen because he wasn't afraid to talk about death so that he could point us to life. Listen to what he said. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Folks, there's a, a bit of dying we need to do if we want to live. There are things that we need to die to if we're to enter into life. That's always been the teaching of God's word. It is of Ecclesiastes and it is of Jesus Christ. So folks, as we have Ecclesiastes before us there, I'm, I'm inviting you to, to consider reading that this month. It's not a very long book. It, it's quite hard to read. I'm going to say that. But I'm going to invite you to, to read it uh, to take that bath that Peterson talks about, to have your imagination washed so that you can uh, come fresh to God to receive his offer of life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.